When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. And welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. I'm very honored to be virtually sitting down with author Patricia Dunn. Patricia Dunn is an Italian rebel raised in the Bronx. She is the author of the young adult novel Rebels by Accident. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, The Village Voice, The Nation, LA Weekly, and the Christian Science Monitor. Dunn has served as the senior director of the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, where she holds an MFA in creative writing. Her latest novel is Last Stop on the Six, which is a novel that asks the question, can you really ever go home again? It follows Teresa Angela Campanozzi as she returns home to the Bronx to her Italian-American family after she's been living in Venice, California for a decade as a political activist. She's returned home to prepare for her brother's wedding. The novel takes a look back at her childhood and the truth about her brother's accident, his impending marriage and subsequent disappearance, her alcoholic father's fall off the wagon, and her former boyfriend's recovery from heroin addiction. It is a very moving, funny, touching novel, and I'm very, very honored to have you here, Patricia. I really just loved this i seriously loved this novel so much i had to like force myself to go to sleep when i <laughs> my eyes would be dripping i'm like one more chapter one more chapter so thank you so much for being here so if you want to just if you want to just briefly introduce yourself and if there was anything that you wanted to add to that bio or anything about the novel sure um i think you've covered it uh my name is uh well Patricia Dunn, as you know, I also have been teaching writing for about 20 years. Um, so I try to do what I can to help um, other writers fulfill their dreams of getting their books out um, if they don't have a choice to write. Because if you have a choice, don't do it. It's hard. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's less stressful things you can do in your life. I'm also a mom of a great uh, daughter, uh, 22, husband, um, Alan, you know, um, yeah, I have a great write, writing workshop um, that helps me go and uh, keep going. And um, yeah, and I'll, I can get to your questions. And thank you. That was a great description uh, of the book. But every time I hear the descriptions of the book, I think it's also funny because it sounds it so serious. I kind of tr try as much. I don't know if I try and be funny as a writer. It just seems to happen that way. But I don't think I could do humor without dealing with, uh, I guess, serious subjects. And I think that's kind of why, um, you know, I was 
glad to be able to work on this book. And it's also why I tried stand up for a very short time, but I realized that it's the hardest thing in the world probably anybody can do is stand up because, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I can imagine that would be, that would definitely be incredibly yeah. hard. Yeah. You got to be you, but not you. And you got to like, you got to write you what you got to say, but not sound like you're acting it. And uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it, I, I only say that because I love to always like give kudos to every stand up comedian out there because just try it once and you'll know how hard it is. Anyway, so, yes. yeah. so if you yes. think writing a novel is hard, try that and then it'll be much easier to finish your book. <laughs> so what was the inspiration for this book? Well, I started the book as a short story in my MFA program from 97. And I went back as a older student and I was in my 30s. So it's kind of funny to think that I felt I was one of the older students. And there are two people that I, were in the, I was in the workshop with that I'm still writing with today. Uh, Jim and Han is another wonderful writer and Kate Brandt. And they loved the story and they kind of encouraged me to keep working with it. Honestly, it was not meant to actually be a novel. It was going to be a collection of short stories. And there was a mentor um, who was teaching a class that I really wanted to get into. And I was excited that I got into it. And then we got a call the summer before it was going to start and said, uh, she's, the teacher is going to be turning it into a novel class. So are you working on a novel? And I said, yes. And of course I wasn't, but that's what started the novel. I wanted to be in that class. And then I guess the inspiration, I just, you know, they say, write what you know. I was trying very hard not to kind of write what I knew. And, uh, but the first versions of this book were very, very autobiographical. And then um, I, as I got my first agent with it, but she loved the book and said, it was a, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but she said, you know, I love the book, but Canada just declared this the death of the novel uh, and uh, I can only do nonfiction. So what do you got in that way? And I'm like, oh, that's great. So I kept working and working on the book. I think I was even breastfeeding when I was finishing the draft uh, <laughs> uh, at the same time. I was a little bit compulsive. Um, and then I finally had to just put it aside. And that's when I actually wrote the novel that got published, Rebels by Accident, because I was trying not to think about this one. And then just said, okay, that was the novel that I wrote just to learn how to write a novel. And I put it aside. And then years after that, um, I was looking for another project. And it was Jimin from that same workshop who said, why don't you go back to it? And I said, are you crazy? No, uh, that is like over done with. And she said, go back to it. No, go back to it. No. All right, let me look at it. And then I realized uh, Grace Pally was this wonderful short story writer. I once said when I got, she probably said this many times, but when I saw her speak said, you know, it would take her 10 years to write a story. And all of us aspiring writers like gasped, 10 years, are you kidding? Um, and then she qualified it with saying she had to grow into the person and the writer, but also the person to be able to finish that story. And I think when I was able to go back I was able to see what needed to be taken out of it and, and how I needed to go right to really get to the truth. I had to make it more fictional and lean into characters in different ways than the original. And I had to cut characters and Billy was a new character um, in this version that never existed in the beginning. So that's, I guess, the and so the inspiration in general though, is really where I grew up. And my family is uh, a big inspiration for the story, although um, I claim that it has nothing to do with them, but we all know that's not true. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like you said, they do say write what you know, 
And I know you said you changed it a little bit and it was originally really autobiographical. So yeah. even with changing it though, um, what, is there a character in here that you relate to more than the others? Is it Angela or is it somebody else? I pro I think, and I relate less to Angela now because uh, maybe my younger self, because I was an activist in LA, would uh, relate more. But I think I relate more, which, you know, as I would say, God help me, uh, to the mother character, uh, who is closest to uh, that the character that I based the character on in real life. You know, if you would have said to me five, 10 years ago, well, maybe even three years ago, you're just like your mother, I would have taken that as an insult. Now I take it as a compliment, right? So, um, I think I kind of I, I re relate or I guess I could say I admire the mother character in the book the most. Um, but, you know, but that Billy, I think, kind of tugs at my heart. And, and Jimmy is really I feel very, very close to who's also fictionalized in a lot of ways. I mean, I did have a brother who was a child actor and my father was an exterminator for a period of time. And he was a stage father. But I did lean into a lot of fiction to um, kind of bring out those relationships. And I, lo I love the characters in here. They're so well-written, even the small, little, minute characters that are in there for like maybe a scene or, you know, like a page or two. Yeah, They're yeah, very well-written. I was going to say the tux, uh, the woman who runs the tux shop. Yes. Um, so she's based on like maybe a thousand people I knew, but I think she's one of my favorite uh, people. Um, and I had the most fun with her. Because she, she gets to be the wise one who gets yeah. who says the truth. So I like those kind of characters. Yes. And um, the book is set in 1991. And I know you've been writing this since 1997. Um, but it's set right before the Gulf War, like mm -hmm. literally right before that. Was there a reason that you chose to set the book during that time? Well, it started out with that's what I knew. It's funny when people are now referring it to kind of historical fiction, that kind of makes me think like 90s is historical fiction. I guess, yeah, it is. Uh, but I was also an anti-war activist. And when I was started to write the book, when we were trying to stop the war, and this is the first Gulf War with the first President Bush, which is kind of funny that we have to clarify, there was a second Gulf War with the second President Bush, which is a whole, you know, yeah, reality is just a lot more crazier than fiction. It was something that we really believed we could stop. And um, nights before, like in LA, we had thousands and thousands of people out in the streets, we had the Red Hot Chili Peppers perform at concerts on the streets protesting that war. Um, huge bands, although the news wasn't giving it the coverage at the time. And we didn't have social media. For us, the fax mm -hmm. machine was the big technology that was going to help us. So we really, really believed we could make change. And um, we, in looking back at it, that war was already decided long before we you know, believe we can stop, could stop it. And I think there was something about the character also going back home um, and thinking that what she knew to be true was true and that she could make change too. So it's kind of this combination of like, you can't save the world. You can't save yourself. You try to save the world. So then you wind up trying to save other people. And then in the end, you kind of save yourself. And those themes were important to me. And I think that um, that time and also just the tension of, because the book really takes place over a period of three or four days leading up to the actual war being declared and this wedding that's going to happen. So it's for dramatic tension that helped too. But I think it was just, uh, just, yeah, I don't have a direct answer, but I think a lot of it had to do with just, it was a very important part of my life. And in revising, 
there were about 120 pages I cut out that went a lot more into, um, you know, political areas that I realized wasn't really meant to be in this book. So. Well, I think it's a time too that that people kind of forget about. It's it's interesting yeah. because I do remember. I mean, I was like 13, 12, 13 around that time, and I remember I was protesting with my friends. We would yeah. go up to the we would go up to the corner on like a street, and we'd get like flipped off as teenagers. Yeah. We'd get like American flags waved at us, like you know all this, and yelled at and screamed at. And I remember going down to the Capitol and protesting there and having an article from. Yeah. I mean, I actually find it because I have an article when I was doing research. It's funny because sometimes you need to do more research when you're writing about things you know. And I have an article uh, about young people in Colorado. I don't know if you were in Colorado at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Probably yeah, that were protesting on the corners and the streets and. Yeah, and everybody, the one thing that was amazing about that particular movement is that, uh, well, there are more people that demonstrated since Vietnam in LA, but we didn't get that kind of coverage. And anyway, people were demonstrating all over the country, but there wasn't just the people that were coming back from the Vietnam that had given up or, you know, or many of them stopped being kind of like anti-war activists had come out. And then, but there was this whole youth movement. I mean, I was, I felt old and I was probably my, what, 24 at the time, 25. And there were all these young people that had never protested at all. And just seeing people who had never protested at all, and then people who had worked so hard and, and gave up so much to stop the Vietnam War come together. I mean, it was just this amazing thing that um, you don't see a lot in, well, you don't see a lot in movies or in history. You know, we go from like the 60s, 70s, and then we just go to like now. And it was like a lot of that time just got lost. So that's funny that you would say that you were there because... You know, I remember reading about people in Colorado and other youth people, and they didn't have like thousands. They just would go to the corner or go downtown and go to City Hall. And it made it, you know, yeah. it was important. It was, yeah. It was, it was. So I was, it was brought back a lot of memories just reading even little bits of that. And, and I do think people do forget that. They just kind of forget that even happened. It's really weird. I, you know. But let's go to Angela and her family, because they have a lot of secrets they are keeping from each other and from themselves, really, too. I think that's another that's big thing. Big yeah. Um, how do these secrets impact the characters? And was there a reason you wanted to explore that, like keeping secrets? Well, what's true, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood called Pelham Bay and also in my particular family. Everybody's very loud. And I remember when people would come visit from other areas, like from when I went to college and I'd bring someone home and everyone would ask me, why is everybody yelling? And I'm like, who's yelling? So everybody talks like really loud, but we don't really say what we mean to say. Right. You know, so, and like, you know, I mean, like you may remember the mother character, uh, the, you know, and the women in my family don't cry. Right. And if they do, it's behind closed doors. They, you know, it's like, we don't have time to cry. And the men cried, right? It was a very different world, but there's all these things that are not said. And I did want to explore about the things that happen in what's not said and the assumptions that we make because of that. Angela, who's been away for 10 years, when she comes home, she's thinking about home as what she remember, remembers it to be, which wasn't completely the way it was because it's memory. And then she also starts buying into stereotypes and... Um, things that weren't necessarily even true about her neighborhood or the people in it because of what she's been away for so long. So she started believing an almost Hollywood version of this world. And then the secrets, like you said, and I think you really hit on something there that we 
keep but we don't but really from ourselves and i think that's a big part of what you know like nobody wants to tell her where her brother is she comes back she's a really so afraid to face him and then he's not there and everyone's like she's like you're getting married where is he and nobody really knows but they don't want to well they don't want to say they don't know um because they want to just act like okay everything's going to be fine if you just act like everything's going to be fine it will be fine so there's this denial aspect to it as well and um and that's always you know i think you look at most there's always secrets in books and i mm -hmm. think family secrets and how we work together uh to e to either like you know protect them or what the misunderstandings that happen because of those secrets i, I was always like fascinating with playing with and i think that's kind of probably why i really kind of leaned into that hard so i also had a mother who would call me up every week to tell me the weather in la which oh, didn't she did. that often and she would tell me this about you know this neighbor that neighbor and then i would hear from my sister that my grandmother was in the hospital or these big things and i would be like why didn't you tell me and her attitude was like well what could you do you know you're so far away you know it was always this idea of like well what could you do? And there was this feeling that once you, when I left to go to LA and that's true, it's like, once you leave, you're gone, you're out. And so I came back, I'm very part of my family now, but they will still tell stories uh, about a time period. And they'll be like, oh, but you weren't here. You were in California. And I will turn around and tell them, no, I was eight years old. I was here, you know, but once you go, I, once I left, that was it. You know, it was like I got wiped out of an entire memory, like a collective memory of this family. And I still hear, oh, you were in California. I'm like, no, I was 10. I was here. So it's <laughs> funny. But I think that because also I was always a little bit on the outside. You know, I mean, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood where everybody was born in Italy. Um, the original book of the, the title of the book was The Other Side of What? Because everybody was born on the other side, but we never mm -hmm. asked what. We all knew Southern Italy. And even though my family was Italian, we were Italian Americans. So we were the Americans on the block. You know, the good thing is I, when I ate over friends' houses, they didn't make me eat things like tripe because they're like, you won't like it. But, and for those of you who don't know what it is, you look it up and it's like, it's, I think it's, it's lining intestines anyway of, mm -hmm. of animals. But I also was, because I was always on the outside looking in, I think that's probably what started me because I started writing very young, even like in journals. But I think that's what kind of started that, just trying to, I've just looked at the world differently because I had to. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and also Angela is an activist. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you talked a lot about that. You already mentioned that you were doing that in LA yeah. at the time as well. And she'd originally gone out there. Angela did to pursue acting, which was really not something she wanted to do. Way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then pursued activism. Yeah. Uh, my, um, my impression of it was also that that was maybe a way for her to assuage her guilt that she has over Jimmy's accident. Cause. Oh yeah. That yeah. was totally. Yeah. Uh, you got it. Yeah. She, you know, I mean, the whole dream for, especially for the father was that the son was going to be this big actor and the night, you know, before He's going to Hollywood for this big screen test. There's an accident that she feels she's at fault for. And so I think in trying to make up for what the brother couldn't do in her mind and to make up for something that, you know, for the father and also the way she can try to get the family to understand why she's there, but definitely about the guilt. I think she thought that she would become this actor and try to be what Jimmy no longer um, 
Well, he could be, but was choosing not to. And she thought basically because of what she had done. Um, and so it was a lot about her guilt. And then that's, but that's not what she ever wanted. And so she turns to something else instead. So I think then the activism becomes, well, I'm not going to save my brother. So I think it turns into, I'm going to save the world, right? Because it's much easier to save everything else than it is to save ourselves, right? So uh, if we kind of maybe figured out our own stuff, there'd be less probably conflict in the world, but you know, we're human. So we are what we are. So yeah. yeah. But guilt is a lot. I mean, I think I don't, well, guilt is kind of like a natural state where I grew up. So I don't, I mean, you know, just like everybody's guilty of, or, or and it's funny because I once talked to a therapist who said, well, what are you feeling guilty about? You didn't do anything wrong. Like she couldn't get it. I said, well, it's not like you have to do something wrong to be guilty. It's just a state, you know, it's an emotion, mm -hmm. right? That we have. Uh, and actually, usually when people do things that are wrong, that's when they don't feel that they're guilty. Yeah, that that's the kind of other side of it. It's like the innocent feel guilty and the guilty feel innocent. And, you know, it's just, yeah, everything's upside down. So um, and that's yeah. what I tried to get through a little bit and you know and i'll be honest for everybody that's listening it's as a right you know writer we you know we've written this book a lot of years went by you have i've had a lot of time to think about it i sound like oh i knew what i was doing but when you're writing especially those early those first drafts you don't even know really what you're doing right and um and then you start looking back at that draft or other people look at it and they start telling you, hey, is it because, is this what's going on? And you're like, oh, I didn't really see that, but yeah, that's it. And then when you revise, you kind of start putting more of the stuff that you want in there. But in the beginning, I don't know if, how many of us really know what we're doing or how intention, much intention we have when we do it. So, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but I don't think I could really write anything now, enough years of therapy. Maybe I can write a character that doesn't have some guilt, but. I don't know. Well, I just finished writing something with a serial killer who has no guilt at all. So that's probably where I'm playing with that. But anyway. Oh, well, I'd be very, very interested in, in that. Hearing more yeah. about that. Yeah. A little, yeah. Yeah. Well, later. Yes, anyway. <laughs> yeah. I do agree with that about, about the guilt thing. It's like the thing of saying, you know, I have a tendency to say I'm sorry all the time when I, when yes, it's something yeah. that I haven't even done, I haven't even done anything wrong. And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. It's like that, that natural instinct and, and I it's, think so. It's cultural. It's cross cultural, it, yeah. culturals. But I know that um, I have my best friend, uh, well, the one person that I grew up with, who I'm still very good friends with, who now actually lives in Italy. Um, you know, when we're always, oh, I'm sorry, and we just get it. Uh, but I remember the first time I said I was sorry about something to someone, and they said, "What did you do?" And I'm like, "I didn't do anything, but I'm sorry." You know, I mean, like, I'm sorry that you're going through this, or but people don't always understand. They're like, "Why are you apologizing?" And you're like, well, that's kind of what you do. You just, you say you're sorry because you're sorry. So it's like, why are you sorry? Why is, and, but you're right, it is. And some people really get it because it's just part of what they grew up with. And other people are, the first time anyone asked me, like, I don't understand why you're saying you're sorry. I was like thrown back. I was like, what do you mean? You don't know why, why would, don't, aren't you supposed to say you're sorry? Yeah. And then I have a friend who's Canadian and they say sorry for everything. Sorry, you know, every time they bump into each other, it's like, or, or they don't bump into each other. It's like, they're the most polite people in the world. So that's, you know. Yeah, yeah, that, that is very, yes. very true. Uh, I don't mean to put down Canadians. I love Canadians, but it's very <laughs> funny. I've had to make her more like a New Yorker, and she's had to make me more like a Canadian. So, uh, so when I travel, I travel a lot in the world, and people assume that I'm Canadian. Or they, you know, originally, uh, you know, when I'm always take that as a compliment. I'm like, oh, why do you think I'm Canadian? It's like, well, you're not complaining about anything. So I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs>
Um, and you already said a little bit, we said at the beginning that there's humor peppered throughout this. And I do think that is a good thing to have in any kind of heavy, if there's a heavy drama or anything going on, humor is a good thing to have in there. But do you also also think the humor might be used by these characters as a way of deflecting and kind of hiding behind their humor? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, well, I, you know, I'm not a therapist. I don't play one on TV. But um, I think that if any therapist had to, like, analyze or sat down with these characters, they would basically say, I, you know, you're making jokes because, you know, you're deflecting really what you're feeling. Um, and I know that's and, – and, you know, I think that's, you know, it's a – call a defense mechanism of what we do, but that's kind of, you know, what we've always done in my family. Not my, my whole family. Like we have half the family, my brother, my father and I, we use humor all the time to deflect things. And uh, my mother and my sister tend to like do more screaming. You know what I mean? So uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of, it goes both ways as to how you use it, but definitely I know I use humor a lot to kind of deflect emotion or, you know, just, and that's kind of, and I like, doing that when I mean I used to be less conscious about it when I was writing something and now I think it's more conscious because um I just I just think it's part of you know human nature to do that so and I think mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing with very heavy subjects um or things that are you know tragedies right I think it also helps too it helps us get by and I think if we laughed more we'd be better off so I think it's a good thing in that way as well so yeah, no, I agree. and I think that's where a lot of great comedy is born is from tragedy. Like a lot of great comedians and a oh. lot of like when you're yeah, it's a lot yeah. of that's born from my favorite. I mean, I, I'm not gonna can't even think of something right off the top of my head, but my favorite movies are comedies that are dealing with really serious subjects, and it's really hard. You know, I know a lot of actors that will say that are that are incredible actors, and they'll say, "Look, you know, I'm a dramatic actor, but to do to do comedy well." it's really hard because you have to have both, right? You know, it's, you know, not just that those one-liners, there's got, there's a whole level of emotion that's, that's harder to reach to reach when you're also just trying to be funny, but you're also dealing with these other subjects. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah like, Cause the big thing is you don't want to, you're trying not to make people like, you can't be like tr so self-conscious of the fact that you're trying to make people laugh. It has yeah. to come naturally. And that's really hard. You know, I mean, I've done improv before in the past and that's you like, know. yeah, yeah. It's super hard to do. Yeah. To, and, yeah. and the best improv, as you know, is like when you're just not even thinking about trying to be funny, you're just mm -hmm. being there. Right. And then it is funny. Right. Because it'll just come out that way. Uh, but if people ask me all the time and, um, you know, a friend, uh, I may do a podcast on writing funny humor. But if I they say, well, how do you write funny? And I'm like, if I told you, I probably couldn't be funny. You know, it's a. Uh, it's just very, yeah, it's a hard thing to do consciously, you know? Um, I mean, you know, it's one thing you can write funny situations and you can make, you know, and you can write jokes, but it's hard to write a character just being like Ted Lasso, which I just watched recently because I didn't have that particular um, streaming service. And uh, I think it's a phenomenal show because it is, it's very humorous, but when it goes to its serious moments, it's just like, breaks you up because it has that balance that's like perfect but you wouldn't feel the moments that are so like sad if you didn't have the other side of it so mm -hmm. very very yeah 
Very true. Yeah. Yeah. And this could be something that just struck stuck out to me, but it really struck me that in the book, Angela and everybody refers to the mother character as mommy. Mm -hmm. And it struck me because usually you'll hear mom or ma or which is used in here too. But was there a reason um, that that you use that word in there, if that if that makes sense, just because it just it struck it really stuck out to me. Well, it, 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 that was a conscious um, decision later on at, because at different times in earlier revisions, it was, it was a combination of mommy and ma. And then I realized that that mother character, mommy is a, ten, it's a, it's meant to be like that, that word uh, where everybody, you know, she's like the, the, the kind of the leader, but the mother figure and everybody around her, you know, including, you know, the ex-husband, the current husband, you know, like I, her kids, nobody kind of will ever grow up completely in her mind, right? And um, and I think that in her presence, and that's a big thing with Angela. It and that's what I, you know, I think through the course of the book she tries to do um, is that that mommy kind of um, keeps you in that like childhood, you know, almost subservient like you know way of like you're not you're not equal, right? And um, but there's something also endearing about it, right? So I think, you know, there's a joke about Mommy Dearest, for those people who don't know the Joan Crawford story, that was the name of the book. But there is, there's something about using that word mommy that makes the adult, and I, you know, in my family, we go back and forth, right? Um, but the adult in you goes right back to being that kid when you say that, but in that presence of that parent who's like always going to be that like bigger than life parental, I'm trying to think like almost like deity, um, you know, mommy just seemed more appropriate in that way, right? I think it's it's kind of has more power um, than just ma or mother or whatever. I think yeah, no, and it definitely does. It definitely, yeah, yeah, you can definitely see, it. especially I think even more so as the story goes on, and then it kind of really struck me. Oh, yes, this is why we definitely, you know, she's definitely called mommy. It fit perfectly, and I also think a lot of you're exploring a lot of stereotypes too in this novel mm -hmm. um stereotypes of italians definitely with a lot of you know references to the mob and the mafia but i also think stereotypes of sexuality stereotypes of how moms and dads and how they interact with their kids and and so was there a reason you chose to explore those stereotypes in here or well, um, I have to say uh, the press, I mean, I didn't write this before this press, but Boridariga Press, um, which is a wonderful press that does only uh, books by Italians and Italian-Americans, um, part of its mission is to break down the stereotypes of Italian-Americans and Italian, you know, in this country. And um, so I, that's why I think it found a perfect home. But I was looking when I wrote it to really break down a lot of those stereotypes, especially like I said earlier, where the character Angela comes home and starts falling into those stereotypes that, you know, she didn't even grow up with. Right. And she starts believing things. And I don't want to give away too much of the book yeah. that may not necessarily be true because of just that Hollywood version. And then also um, it was very important for me to show the characters, you know, the father character and the mother character, you know, and, and to, to play with the idea of gender and how it is not always what people think and uh so yeah that was it's an important subject and i was conscious because i did want to show that you know it's it's complex right and it's and even 
I mean, a lot of people have this idea that in Italian American families, um, you know, the mother is like the cook and the rule, but the father rules the nest, and uh, that's not the families that I grew up with. They some the fathers may sometimes think they do, but uh, but the, but it's really the woman. Uh, it, it's more of a matriarchal society than um, anything else. So I wanted that to come across as well, and also in this particular family where it is unusual that you would have, you know, your current husband and your ex-husband friends living in the same house, which that is, I will say, based on reality somewhat, that families and even the character with Billy, who's like the brother with that, not biologically, but I really wanted to play with the idea of like the family, you know, that we choose versus the one we're born into and and what, what does family even mean, uh, you know? And that idea of like blood relationships, you know, like blood is thicker than water. Well, that may be true, but like who's blood, you know, what do we mean by that? Right. But yeah, I did want to play off those stereotypes as much as I could and then turn them on their head as much as, you know, I was able to. So when, when you did, and I think the other thing you accomplished in it, at least from, from my viewpoint is there's also, I think, stereotypes that people have in their heads when they're reading about certain people or reading certain things that they might even have that they don't even know that they have. Oh, yeah. And so when you're reading something that's questioning that, it can also be like, oh, I wonder why I thought that this whole time. And it can make you kind of look deeper, which I think the world recently is trying to do. Some people at least are trying to do. And so I did also really appreciate that because I think there are things that even I'm not even aware of that I stereotype that kind of oh, thing. Me so. all the time. I mean, I mean, I, all the, I do the same thing all the time and you're always mm -hmm. like, and that's why we also read and why I think we travel. I mean, now it's a little bit hard to travel, but books do bring us places that get us to question things that we're, that we're, I'm always thinking like, you know, wow, I didn't realize I had that, you know, in me. Or why did I think that? And like, yeah, it's exactly what you said. And um, and if we didn't have other way, you know, if we can't access other worlds or peoples, um, you know, one, yes, we find that we are more alike than we realized. But there's also differences that are wonderful that we just don't always know about because how we're going to get, you know, we're not exposed to it um, unless, you know, we usually... If literature and there's not enough literature out there to and hopefully I know publishing world is trying to make you know more of a difference but they can spend the next thousand years and they still will not have enough underrepresented people of color works out there that should be out there um, but you know it's one I guess one word book at a time so yeah so to start or I guess yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for um, tackling a little bit of that in the novel. Seriously, I think that's that's a, a good thing for all of us to look further yeah, into. It was hard for me not to push. I, I had to, you know, and I got I really wonderful readers. And I was, I had to pull back on some stuff a little bit because I was taking the book in. Anyone knows if I'm writing about anything that has a sense of like, I hate to say political because for me the political is personal, but I will tend to like write paragraphs and paragraphs or chapters about things that really two sentences is enough. So, um, because these are important subjects, but sometimes you can really lose your audience by actually talking at them. And that's something mm -hmm. 
as your audience probably knows right now, I'm a big talker. So I got to learn sometimes to like not talk at. And that's why I think I have a lot of dialogue in this book because I try to let the characters talk more than me. And that kind of is how I play with that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes less is more is kind of the whole thing. That's hard. That can be that's hard what people keep telling me. Yeah. So if I, <laughs> I mean, I might remember the first time, um, you know, my daughter looked at one of the texts I was sending and she's like, oh, you're not saying a novel. That's not how you text. You know, you're supposed to just text with a few words and, you know, or use an emoji for Pete's sake. You know, it's like, what do you, but I still like, you know, that's why Twitter, I was so happy when they gave you more words because Twitter, the, I, I mean, it was so hard for me to like use that as a means of uh, communicating because I'm like, what do you mean I only get these many characters? Um, but it doesn't force you. And I actually can, I do essays as well. And when somebody gives me an 800 word essay to do, and it's amazing how it forces those skills and that part of you to really tell a story. Like, and it, and it may, sometimes it may often make it better uh, because you're choosing every word carefully. Um, but it's hard. Yeah, because I love to ramble, you know, <laughs> and I'm the tangential queen, as I've been told. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, and I know you've talked a little bit already about how your dad uh, was that stage dad and how your brother was briefly was doing acting as well. And the father in this, he is really rather, he's kind of obsessed with it, especially when it comes to Jimmy. And then he kind of transfers it a little bit to Angela, but it's still Jimmy is like his, he's laser focused on that. And how do you think this obsession affected each child? Because I know it affected them differently. And do you think that's part of the reason that he drinks? I think what I tried to do is, uh, is have you think that it could be part of the reason, you know, your unfulfilled dreams. So you try to live it through your children. And but in the end, and, when you know, um, and I think what the father tries to actually say himself is that no matter what i would be an alcoholic right because sometimes it's not always because of the circumstances it's just something because of who you are and um and that's what the hardest truth about addiction knowing and people and having you know my own stuff and um and even my father who's unlike this character um never drank when I was a child. And then um his father was an alcoholic so he never drank and then when I went away to California I came back and my father, you know, showed me like the, this was something that came from real life, showed me this chip in his hand. And I'm like, what's that? And he said, oh, I've been in recovery for three years. And I said, recovery. And then my brother, I also have a sister, uh, both looked at me and said, yeah, you missed a lot while you were gone. And apparently in the time I was gone, my dad, you know, became, you know, um, well, you're always an alcoholic, but, you know, went way out there and then um got help and was in recovery and um and thank goodness my father stayed in recovery until he passed many 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 years later but um it was just but i think you know talking to people and um about addiction sometimes and even you know with our own addictions we're always looking for reasons and um sometimes we just 
there aren't any specific reasons. There's circumstances, but it's, it is what it is. And it's a matter of like, we need to stop always asking maybe why and just try to figure out, okay, how we can change things. And, you know, and I think that's what I tried to do a little bit with this character because it does seem a lot like he started drinking um, because of the brother, but he's had a history of drinking, right? So, and then, you know, I think he knows that he would probably, and she thinks that part of it may be her fault. And and he says, look, I would, I would be who I am no matter what. And I think whether it's about addiction or whatever, I think sometimes we take on a lot of responsibility for who other people are, good and bad, you know, and people are who they are, no matter what we, think we can do to change it or not right and sometimes we can we can be great influences in sports systems for people and we should but we you know we're not always and sometimes we are responsible for certain things happening but i think we all have to take responsibility and i don't do this always but or most of the time but for our own actions and i think that's mm-hmm. kind of what the father tries to say but I did want to play with the idea because, you know, having a brother who's an actor, you know, I was the oldest, my brother's a year and a half younger. And, you know, you get kind of lost in that world. Like my brother, like, um, doesn't remember like a lot of the lines that like, you know, he had a photographic memory and he can remember lines very quickly, but I'll, I can still recite lines from his plays because I used to rehearse with him. And, you know, that world is very clear in my mind. Um, and, I think a lot of attention was put on my brother and in a not always in a great way because it was so much stress. So that protected me and I got the father that like could be more encouraging and you want to be a writer, you should be anything you want. And, you know, and was very supportive in that way. But a lot of the stress got on, you know, my brother and I, you know, wasn't always intentional. I don't think it was always intentional. It wasn't, but that's just what happened. You know, my dad was also a young father. He's 20 years older than my brother. Right. So there's a lot of dynamics that played that I wanted to play off that, but I met in that world, a lot of stage parents and people always assume that it's the stage mother. And I met a lot of stage fathers who uh, were just, you know, um, invested in their, child's career and lived basically through their children. Um, and, um, and we used to, the one good thing that um, I think both of my parents were good about is they tried to normalize my brother's life as much as possible. So we stayed, you know, we lived in the Bronx. My brother went to public school. Uh, he loved sports. He played baseball. I mean, he was still being pulled away for auditions and all that stuff, but because of that family structure, we had a lot of actor child actors that would stay with us because they didn't have that stability often in their own families. And so they'd stay with us for, I remember we always had somebody, you know, and my mother was great about always bringing in people, but we had different people staying with little kids, staying with us all the time for different periods of time. So um, the whole yeah. other world. Yeah. So I think we do that all the time. And we always live through our kids, no matter what, whether they're actors or whatever, um, you know, and we take all their, Failures as our own, but we also feel like everything, whether we say it or not, that they do that's great is because of us. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're big. If you're a parent, you're part narcissist, you know. Anyway, so, <laughs> you know, a lot of parents are going to be mad at me about that, but, you know, it's also, you know, and it's true. It is a thankless job. But anyway, um, but that's the thing. We expect to be thanked, and you don't. You have your kids. That was your choice. Now, if they're not thanking you their entire life, that's probably healthy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the fact that, you know, your family would take in some of these child mm. actors and stuff. And, and I know when I grew up, my, I grew up with a single mom, but my mom was like that too. She was like the neighborhood mom and we would have our friends would stay and because they couldn't, they were different mm. or unique and their family didn't appreciate them or didn't, didn't like them as much, or they felt ostracized. And I know you already spoke a little bit about fam found family, but I think the biggest evidence of that in here, of course, is the character of Billy, who yeah. is taken in by this family after his, um, especially after his dad dies. And then basically he's lost his mother too, even though she's yeah. alive. Well, at the time of the novel said yeah, she's yeah, not, yeah. but yeah. Was that why you wanted to explore that? Because you had grown up with that, where you had seen all these kids that didn't have also, a family? Yeah. And also um, the family, when I, you know, I had to, without consciously realizing it, I think, um, you know, because I started college in New York um, and then I left. I was in my second year, no, third year. And I just got in a car with friends and went to L.A. And I was not looking to be an actor or anything like that. I never wanted to go to L.A. in my life. I mean, my brother's nickname was Wood for Hollywood. And he never wound up going to Hollywood until uh, he was in a completely other profession decades later. But I just needed to get away from that world because I think it felt so claustrophobic to me without even knowing it. I wasn't even living in at home. I was living in Manhattan, um, which my accent comes out a little bit, but I had a very heavy Bronx accent that I lost in Manhattan, which is a whole other story. And I think that I found another family as well. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in my family. My parents were divorcing when I left. I mean, there was a lot of stuff happening. And I think that when I went out to LA, I found a group of friends who did and became family and um, people that I am um, even here in New York, um, when I moved back to New York and Connecticut. And my, I mean, I have friends that I actually are as much family in me as anything else. And my mother was very much like that too. I mean, even to this day, she has friends you know, for 60, 70 years. And um, the, the one, the joke is in my family, they say it's like the mafia, like once you're in, you're never out. And um, we still at, you know, Christmas Eve, ex-girlfriends and boyfriends would always come. And, you know, it's like, it, it's just family. I really wanted to explore that idea of like what, and I, you know, was a single mom for a lot of years as well. And also the idea of, you know, who is your family? family right um and i'm having a single child does that mean that your kid doesn't have siblings and what does a sibling mean and and um so yeah the, so the idea of family is a very interesting mm -hmm. uh, area that whether i consciously or and I, I almost i mean whatever i'm writing i seem to go there even if it's a very very different subject and i think we all do in a way of course but but it's yeah it's a big thing for me how families get defined and cultures and within those family uh, a character that got cut from this story and hopefully she'll um show up somewhere was based on my grandmother who was um deaf and my both grandparents were deaf and um that was a subculture within where i grew up and they would you know take us as little kids to the silent club which was ironically the noisiest place i've ever been in my life and you know it was a whole other world um, where people couldn't hear and they communicated very differently. And, but we didn't even know that there was anything different. It was just a whole other world that my grandmother had more friends than anyone, but her friends were her family as well. And so I grew up with that idea of like family does, you know, like family is everything, but what you define family to be is a, a whole other definition. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, 
you get burned, they say, right? Sometimes you, you know, take in or you befriend um, people that don't always have your best interests at heart. And, but that's part of learning, right? I guess. Um, yeah. 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 And that's something we've talked about even on this podcast before and how you find um, your family through other means too, like through your love of media is kind of what we've explored on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's how you can find, you know, I think people don't appreciate enough what is, what an impact media and any kind of media and any kind of entertainment and novels can have on your life and how it can, show yourself you know it can be like a mirror but can it also help you find other people too oh it's huge um you know i recently had the uh great experience of being able to go back to the library that i used to go to as a kid and uh one of the one of the two libraries but i used to go on a saturday and i would tell my friends that i was doing chores or something because i would too was too embarrassed to tell them i was going to hang out at the library um because you didn't do that that wasn't Mm -hmm. like i guess cool but there were books that I would just pull off the shelves that were probably very inappropriate for 10 year old or 11 year old, however old I you know, was at times, because, you know, we didn't have that adult and child section. They were just all together. But I remember reading books that just changed my life just because I was, there were other worlds that I was never, you know, that I wouldn't have known if it wasn't for those books. And I think that's why it was, I, you know what? I, I don't want to sound like cliche, but it was because of books that I knew that I was going to get out of the neighborhood and I was going to travel and I was going to see the world. And I wasn't necessarily sure what I was even going to see, but I knew that I was going to leave. And it was also writing was another way that I knew that I was going to explore the world. And my writing family has got me through so much because they also get it you as a writer and a person and how those two come together. So whatever art, especially as artists, and media, you know, when you're doing this this kind of work in our society, we don't always get the kind of support from the outside world, you know? Not everybody gets paid like a billion dollars to do whatever they're doing, right? So to have people there that get both sides of you uh, is important. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's true. What you're doing, I think, thank you, because uh, it's incredible and it's hard work and it's really important and giving a voice to people who tell because stories matter more than ever now and to have places where people can actually talk about story and what it means to write your story and for other people to read it and experience it is like i mean it's a gift that you can't I don't know, you can't buy it on amazon that's for sure but um <laughs> well thank you thank you yeah yeah it's and it and it can be a thing that can feel very lonely that's why you like to have yeah. people around you that ex- that like you said um, understand that that feeling, yeah. especially you know, writing is something that's such a lone, lonely thing where it's just you there doing it. So to have that community, I'm sure helps tremendously with that when you don't, you know, so that you're not alone in that. Well, process. that's why you know I've been teaching for 18 years in the writing workshops, and um, and I tell people, you know, you don't do this alone. I mean, yes, you have to be alone at times to write, you know, your stories, but. You need that writing community. And I tell people, you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to go like, you know, sit and live in that bleak world, you know, where, you know, you're just suffering in silence. I mean, find other writers or, you know, whatever your your community is and 
and share it because it, books also, you know, people think that you just write a book. I mean, it's, you know, and there was an expression, well, you know, people say it's like giving birth. Well, it's really like putting the kid through college and graduate school. And then if you're lucky, maybe, you know, they'll come back and like say, yeah, thanks mom. Um, but they probably won't, you know, because it's just what happens, but it's a lot of work and a lot of people, I mean, the editors, the, the readers, um, the, the publisher, I mean, the people that go into a book, get, even getting out in the world, um, there's so many different people that never get recognized and they're amazing human beings that just do it because they love it. You know, they don't get paid a lot to do it, that's for sure. And they do it because they just love books and stories and they know that it matters, fiction and nonfiction, you know. Um, uh, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Angela leaving. So she's from LA or not from LA, I'm sorry. She's from Pelham Bay and she lived in LA for a while in Venice and comes back to Pelham Bay. And do you think she really misses Pelham Bay? Do you think there's a part of her because she keeps talking throughout how she wants to leave and she shouldn't have come back and she's been gone for, you know, 10 years. Do you think she actually even likes LA or was it just the place she could run because it was the furthest away as far as like in yeah, I think she ran away originally because um, she couldn't face what was happening with her brother. And I think L.A. was the only other place in her world um, that was ever talked about. Right. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the actor, that's where you're going to go. You're going to go to. Hollywood. And that's where the brother was actually meant to go. Right. To, to what Hollywood? I mean, I lived in Hollywood for a while and it's not the Hollywood that people, you know, people used to think they were listening when I, I lived in this like run down studio and people would call me from New York saying, I hear the ocean. And it was the 110 freeway that was my backyard. Right. So it was really like, you know, so, but Hollywood, this, whatever it symbolized, I think she thought that's what she was like. And besides also the distance, that's what she was running away to. And um, so I don't know if she would have consciously would have left if it wasn't for what happened. Um, but then when she does leave, I think there's a lot of fear. She wants to go back, but I think there's a lot of fear in, facing what she she feels like she pretty much destroyed this family and there and you know and you know in this way you know it's way too much about her where she thinks i think that's the activist too in her where she thinks like if i just do enough or the right thing i can change even when she finally goes home after all those years and tries to face she thinks that she's going to make things better if she finds her brother she can just make all things everything right right um and I think what she's really running from, you know, obviously, um, I think people will get is that herself, right? And you know, as they say, you can keep running, you know, it's the Dorothy syndrome. As much as you run, your backyard, you're still always in your own backyard. And I think when she goes home, you know, she spent 10 years convincing herself that it's better that she's not there um, and that yes, she may miss people, but that's okay. Right. You know, and she's got and her life in LA is where she really gets to be who she really is meant to be. And I think she had to leave to actually be able to go home and see who she is, but she kind of gets a little bit stunted. I think when she leaves, she kind of doesn't grow maybe in the way she maybe would have grown if she would have stayed in Pelham and faced some of those things. I think she kind of just stays in that place where she's still calling her mother, mommy. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. So when she goes back to Pelham Bay, I think that all she sees is all that was the bad. And it takes a while before she realizes, wait a minute, there's a lot of good here too. So I think that's why she's constantly thinks I shouldn't be here. I need to go back. I need to leave because she 
takes on a lot of responsibility and for her to realize that, wait a minute, I'm not alone. I think she felt very lonely in that family without always knowing it. And when she goes out to California, I think she's felt, you know, even among thousands was alone there. I think she's a loner and doesn't want to be a loner and then realizes, wait a minute, she's people's always had her back, even if she couldn't see that herself. Like her mom, who she thinks is always being very judgmental. I think she would, you know, it takes a long time to realize that her mom is really there for her um, and has always been there for her. Yeah. And definitely the uh, running away from yourself. And I think she's definitely running away from herself yeah. and you, and you can try and try, but you're always with yourself. So, yeah, exactly. yeah so it's pretty, it's next to impossible to do. <laughs> to I, wish do that. Was. I wish she could just get on a plane and go away <laughs> for a little, I guess you can if you go on these little, right now it'd be nice to be in a very warm, sunny place for a week and just forget everything, but it ain't going to last that long, you know, and you don't always want it to you know, last that long because you know, I don't know. I think as you get older, you realize there's a lot of great stuff in the world that we're, you know, that we, the people that we love and that love us. And with all the stress and anxiety we go through, I think if, you know, COVID has been horrible, but I think what it did for a lot of people, I know it did for me, it helped people to slow down and to appreciate things um, that we weren't necessarily appreciating. You know, I mean, who would have appreciated usually like the big family holiday dinners, you know, that you feel like, Oh, do we have to go to another one? You just were longing for it. And you appreciated, you know, the people you couldn't see in ways that you just weren't able to do that before. You just took it granted for you took things for granted as we come out or go back in. I don't know where we are right now, but I hope people, you know, don't lose that. I mean, I don't know if it, everybody got that, but I think that I want to make sure that I don't lose that feeling of what matters because I mm -hmm. think my priorities had to shift because of COVID or my priorities of what was important. And I sometimes worry a little bit because you know, I'm also a worrier, kind of like the characters in my book, but um, I worry a little bit that I'm going to go back to that, like always got to keep moving, right? And not mm -hmm. stop and just be with, you know, what matters, right? Yeah, very true. Very true. Yeah, I'm hoping a lot of people can can learn that through this. I know it's it's hard and it still is hard right now for a lot of people. So um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's been a difficult couple of years. Yeah, I know. And it's yeah, and every time we think it's over, it's not over yet. So and, uh, mm -hmm. and it, who knows what will happen? But I think we need this now more than ever. And I mean, you know, this we need to be good to each other more than ever. You know, yes. we need to just really just give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, even the sorries and the thank yous and the please. And, you know, the other day I found myself like letting somebody get ahead of me. And this person was, did not need to get ahead of me. And I watched them cut off two other people because they were trying to get wherever they were going. And I just purposely stopped, which I never would have done before to let this person who was being pretty obnoxious to other drivers get ahead of me because I just thought, look, where am I going? That's in such a hurry. And if they need this little break, I can do that. And it was a little minor thing, but I was like, you know, it felt good to be able to do that little thing for somebody that wasn't always acting so great. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. um, so, and look, you know, if anything, the earth, I mean, I got a call after about a year into COVID or maybe even six months, a friend of mine from LA said, she took a picture with a phone and or a video and said, do you see what you're saying? And I said, what the sky? I mean, I wasn't even understanding what she was talking about. She goes, this is LA. 
look, you can see the sky, right? I mean, there was no smog, right? Uh, and that was huge. It's been really difficult. I lost my father during COVID and um, I know people lost a lot of people in their lives. Um, so, you know, I hope that we can come through this just supporting each other as much as possible. And when, you know, which is kind of why I, um, you know, have to sometimes avoid some of the news because it just gets to be a bit much. But fortunately, I have people in my lives that watch it all the time. So they keep me up to date. And then I have to say, will you stop telling me about what's happening right now? Because I really just need to not think about that thing that they keep showing a thousand times. Um, but anyway. No, yeah. it, it becomes fatigue that that compassion fatigue also can can take hold so yeah I and i think that's what writing tries to allow me to do um it gives me a place to put all of those emotions and things that don't make sense i get to make sense you know it's like yeah, there's a power in that i guess in a sense but you know you get to make sense of what's you know of what doesn't make sense right um mm -hmm. i know when i work with writers and they'll say but it really happened that way. And, you know, the other writers will say, well, it's okay if it really happened, but you have to make us believe it happened, right? And that's not easy to do on the page, but it also allows us in our writing to kind of, you know, in real life, it may really happen that way and it doesn't make any sense at all. But we, we read for things sometimes to make sense, for meaning, right? I guess is really a better way of saying. It. And we don't always get that meaning in the real world. So I know as a kid, I think that's kind of why I was also reading because yeah. a lot of things didn't make sense. And and in stories, you know, they made sense. Well, I want to ask you just one last thing here. Did you learn anything about yourself while writing this book? Yeah. Well, I took from the start <laughs> to the to the publishing was twenty five years. So I hope so. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but in the writing of the book. Uh, as a writer, I learned a tremendous amount, especially going back to it. So I would tell anybody who's written a book, who's put it away, take it out because you may not actually use anything but a paragraph, but there's probably something there that you that you kind of don't even know is still there. And if you actually, most of the times you, you realize that even if you've written other things, you're still exploring a lot of the same themes. But what I did learn is um, less is more, like you'd said, and I also learned about myself as a person. I learned that I did love where I grew up and the people a lot more than I thought. You know, I, you know what I don't talk about too much in this version of the book, um, which I had in other versions, but I grew up in a neighborhood where it was very insular and people, you know, were very protective and there was a lot of racism because of that. And that it was a very ugly side to where I grew up in, in that ways. And uh, so I just walked away, ran away, whatever, thinking that all of it was bad and that all the people were bad and everything about it was bad. And I learned that, no, there was a lot of also good and there was a lot of also wonderful people and a lot of wonderful things about where I grew up. But I also learned that um, I'm not where I grew up. I'm a lot of things. Um, and I didn't just grow up in that neighborhood. I grew up in a lot of places and I'm still growing up, right? So I think that I've had a lot of influences on me, um, but the biggest thing is that um, knowing that you can't run away from yourself uh, was something that I like learned. And I think that, you know, your characters can. And I think that, you know, as I developed, as I was writing this book and looking back, as I developed as a human, I guess, whatever, 
I could help my characters be who they were. I, you know what? I think I learned about myself and also as a writer that you can't control things the way you want to. And so, you know, there's that cliche about you, let your characters just do what they want and they'll tell you their stories. And I used to roll my eyes at that. And it's really a very true thing. If you really learn who your characters are and you didn't, you'll know what they need to do on the page, they'll just do them. And if you stay out of their way and when I stopped trying to control them and also when I stopped trying to control the other people in my life, which I'm not always so great about, things happen as they should and things work out. Not always the way you think they're going to work out, but they work out the way they're meant to be. So I guess I learned out. I learned that. Um, yeah. And I think I learned to love a little bit more from where I was from. And somebody that I knew from the Bronx reached out to me and said, you know, I used to be ashamed to be from the Bronx. And then I read your book and this was probably one of the nicest things I ever heard. And it made me actually cry. And I felt really proud. And, you know, I actually told this person was also a teacher of my class. I was from the Bronx. And I never said that before. And it made me think, well, wow, that's wonderful. I made someone feel that way, but I didn't feel proud from that. I was from the Bronx for a lot of years. And, um, and I think I learned that, um, I don't know if proud is the right word, but I learned that there's, you know, there's a lot of love in a lot of the ugliness too. And that um, I was very one way or the other, right? Even as an activist, you were right or you were wrong, you were this or you're that. And there are some things that are just always going to be that way to me, but there's a lot more things that are complex. So I think, as they say, there's more gray matter out there than um, I used to give credit to. Great questions, I have to say. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, that was great. That was really, really great. And um, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Well, it's great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I do. I love this novel. So I highly recommend it to everybody, all of our listeners. I know we have a lot of people that are also on our panel that I'm going to recommend the book to, too, because they are huge readers. So I definitely think they will love it. Um, you're welcome. And if you, is there anything you want to promote, Patricia, or where, where can people find you? Okay, so you can find me at Patricia Dunn, D-U-N-N, author.com. Uh, I have a newsletter as well. So if people even want to email me, you can email me at um, pdunnauthor at gmail.com. And I try to get, if I don't get back to you, don't worry about it's because I didn't see it. Send me another email. I know I'm probably opening this up, but it's fine. I'd love to hear if you, if it's anything I can do, if you want to, if you're interested in writing, I, you know, if you have a question, you know, write me, you know, my book is on Kindle and it's on other, whatever, but support local bookstores as you can, because they're so important and they do so much for people. I mean, just to have a place to even physically go to where you can pick up books. And that's something that, you know, I think will always be around and um, I read digitally. And then if I love a book, I go and buy it. So, you know, I have so many books because you just do that. So a, a book, I am books is.com. You know, they're a wonderful bookstore that has survived during COVID and they're, you know, are really thriving and they do a lot for Italian American authors, but just buy books. And I, my biggest joke is you don't have to read them, just buy them. Because, you know, support authors and their stories and um, and read them and write your stories, I guess. I want to tell people your stories matter. So write them, tell them. And um, PatriciaDunnAuthor.com, you know, you can write to me there as well. 
if you're interested in, in writing or just want to know more about my, the stories or what I'm writing next, please, you know, reach out. Thank you so much. And that link will also be in our show notes so people can yes. easily find that. And just watching wonderful podcasts like this because they're incredible. So, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. If you would like to be a potential interview guest on the show, feel free to reach out to us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And on our next episode, we are continuing our celebration of Christian Bale with a look at the movie The Fighter. This is the movie that Christian won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for. So this will be an exciting and fun conversation. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.